Hebrews chapter 9, and we're going to do the first bit, the second half of the chapter today. We're going to do a chunk. We're not going to break it up bit by bit too much. We're going to do a chunk. Hebrews is all about Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior. Better than the old covenant, but better than any other thing, any other thing in the world too. In the end, if all you've got is Jesus, you have all you need. In this life and for life eternal. Let's bow our heads and pray for him. Holy Spirit, we ask you for your help today. You inspired scripture, inspire our minds and our hearts to see, to hear, to receive. But more than anything else, make Jesus more real to us now in these next minutes we pray. Amen. So last time we were going through Hebrews chapter 9, we were thinking about the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the Day of Atonement, and all of that was a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus himself, our Redeemer. So we need to go back a bit to pick up to verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, into heaven, in other words, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, back in those days, the old covenant, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay. Then verse 15, for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Jesus is called the mediator of a new covenant three times in the letter. And this is the middle one of the three. Earlier on in chapter 8, mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. When we get to Hebrews 12, it's we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Jesus is both the maker of the new covenant and the mediator of the new covenant. He's still active in its operation. He's the mediator. 1 Timothy. There is one mediator between God and men. The man... Christ Jesus. One mediator. Not a pope, not a priest, not a prophet. One mediator between any human being and God the Father. It is God the Son, God the Man, Christ Jesus. And that is not a was statement. It's not he used to be, he did it. It's that he is it now. He is now the mediator. No less than whenever, back then. Only Jesus. It says here a death has taken place. It's by his death that, our, that he has redeemed us from our transgressions, from our law-breaking, so that we may receive the promise of internal inheritance. This redemption, this salvation, is for those he calls. 
We learned that in Romans. Remember, Romans, we saw a bit of it on that video earlier. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, which is chose, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And these whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's why all things work together for their good. Because God, who's called them and chose them and redeemed them and justified them and will glorify them, makes it so. It doesn't just happen. It's just not, it's not fate or luck. God makes it work for their good. Even if it starts out bad. For where a covenant or testament is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. It's never enforced while the one who made it lives. We're talking about a testament here. How many know what a last will and testament is? Okay. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. The word for covenant and the word for will and testament are the same word in Greek. A little confusing for those of us we're used to these kind of legal things in English. Paul switches between these two ideas. The two things are very different in our society. You have a covenant which is about you can use the land for this, but not for that. You know, you have a, or whatever. You have a covenant that says this, this, this building must be used for, or whatever. But you have a will which says this person, when he dies, these will, the, all his property will go to these people. That's a will. Yes? And they're very different things. In the New Testament, they are the same thing. They're the same thing. And the writer to Hebrews says, you don't, the covenant, the testament, doesn't take force until the person who wrote it dies. So guess what? Jesus has made the new covenant and has died to ratify it by his blood. Therefore, we inherit all that he promises us because the testator, the one who made the testament, has already died. Now, to confuse us, he rose again. So he is the mediator, the executor of the testament of the covenant. He makes it happen. I, mean, I know, when, you know, when someone dies, you have an executor, someone who organizes that it happens and they deal with the bank accounts and insurance companies and all the rest of it. Jesus is the executor, the mediator of the new covenant. Last will and testament. A will calls for a testator, someone to make the will. It calls for an inheritance. Then it calls for people who are going to be the inheritors of the inheritance. No, but having an inheritance, the government in this country takes the inheritance if there's no one to inherit. All right? Then there's conditions of inheritance. How do you inherit? You have to turn up to the lawyer's office and hear the reading of the will and you know, be a bit, prove your identity. We don't have to do that. Jesus vouches for us. The death of the testator and an executor. So the death of the testator. Testament takes force when the, when the person who made the will dies. So in both the old covenant and the new covenant, there was death. The first covenant was inaugurated through blood and death, but that of animal sacrifices. But the new and better covenant, the, or testament, how many of you know that in your Bible it says Old Testament, New Testament? That's the same as Old Covenant, New Covenant. Same thing. 
The new and better testament or covenant was inaugurated through the blood and death of Jesus himself. It was made in his blood. It's a great quote here from a guy. Just an article online I read by him. Jesus set the new covenant up as the last will and testament that would come into force with his death. So it should be easy for all to understand that the new covenant came into force when Jesus died on the cross. And it's the final will and testament. You see, if someone makes a will, then they change their mind and they make that one and they tell the kids if they don't behave, they'll make another one. And, you know. But this is the final will and testament, the final covenant. There isn't going to be another one. This is it. This is the eternal one. This lasts forever. What Jesus has done for us through his life, through his death, through his resurrection is good for eternity. No more, no more word needs to be said. No more covenant needs to be made. This is it. It's his last will and testament. And therefore, as I said a couple of weeks ago, it supersedes because Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament promises, all of the Old Testament covenants, the four or five that came before him. He's completed them. He's fulfilled them. This is now the deal. There isn't another one to go back to. There isn't an alternative. I want to live back under the law. I'll go back to Moses. Jesus has fulfilled and succeeds all of the Old Testaments, the Old Covenant. It overtakes the previous covenants. But we have a living executor or mediator. He rose again, and he's the executor of his own testament, of his own will. Now, if you're a lawyer, you cannot draw up a document to define that one. The guy's going to die, then he's going to, you know, his, his, his inheritance is going to be ready, then he's going to come back himself and share it out. <laughs> but that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's come back from the dead to be the one who actually causes us to receive the things that he's purchased for us. He lives and reigns forever with the Father. He continues to be a mediator. He continues to make intercession or representation for us. And through him, every blessing and benefit of the new covenant comes to us by the Holy Spirit. To put this in a simple statement, Jesus has saved us by his death. Jesus continues to save us by his own eternal life. He is everything to us in this new covenant. He's the sacrifice, he's the testator, he's the guarantor, he's the mediator, the executor. You can't draw up a document that says that, except we have one. It's called the New Testament, the Gospel. Glorious truth that overshadows any legal process. And by the way, most of our things about law and inheritance and wills come from Roman law, which is why this is not so unfamiliar to us. They're based on Roman law. There follows now a comparison between how the Old Covenant was set up and how the New Covenant was set up, both through the shedding and sprinkling of blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled. Now this is, this is a bit yucky, this thought here. He sprinkled both the book of the law itself and all the people, a couple of million people, dip, shake, dip, shake, a bunch of hyssop, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Now all of that's drawn from Exodus 24. 
There's also additional points put in there about the, the water, the scarlet wool, the hyssop. Paul draws together a number of features about the inauguration of the law, the opening of the tabernacle, and the Day of Atonement, and treats them as if they are one event. Why? It's not that they happened all at the same time in the Old Covenant, but in Jesus they do all happen at the same time. They're all fulfilled in him, and fulfilled in him by one event, his death on the cross. All right? So although you have to say, well, it's there in Exodus and there and there and then all of those different things, in Jesus they become one. They're fulfilled in him. Hyssop is a medicinal plant. It's rather like oregano or thyme. And a bunch of this herb was tied up with scarlet wool, dipped in the blood and shaken to sprinkle or to paint the blood. When was that first done? Anybody remember when they first painted blood on something? Thank you. You've got some Bible scholars in the room. Passover. They had to take the they had to take the blood and paint it on the doorposts and the lentil of their household. And when the angel of the messenger of death came, he passed any household that had the blood on the door. All right. It's a symbol of God's protection that a death has already taken place. Get this. Somebody's already died. It was an animal, but someone's already died. You don't need to come in here. Right? That's how the gospel works. Jesus has already died for us. We don't get to die. Not in terms of being eternally lost and cut off from God. We don't get to die because Jesus has died for us. So in the Sinai Desert, a bunch of his dipped in blood sprinkled the book of the law and the people. And in the same way, he, Moses, sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens. All right? The, the, the things on earth were copies of heavenly realities. They had to be cleansed with blood. Not the heavens themselves, but the copies needed to be. But the heavenly themselves, things themselves, with better sacrifices than these things. These earthly things were shadow of a heavenly reality. Did heaven need cleansing? No, there's no sin and no evil in heaven. But we need cleansing and forgiveness if we're ever going to enter into that presence of God. The blood was shed for our cleansing. A greater and better sacrifice than those that took place on the old. So to go back to verse 19. The hyssop dipped in blood sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. The point there, the main point there is not the tabernacle, not the vessels. It's the book and the people. There's two things, the book and the people. Both the covenant itself written down and the people who were the, 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 the objects of this covenant, they, the, the, the people that God was making a covenant with, were sprinkled and sealed together by blood. Now listen to this from 1 Peter. He writes to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now our translation of English doesn't get the order helpfully, very helpful there. We are not obedient and sanctified by the work of the Spirit so that we will be sprinkled with his blood. We have been sprinkled with his blood to seal us to obedience to him and to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. It's how it started. It started at the cross. 
When did that happen? It happened at Golgotha. It didn't happen when you said, yes, I'll believe in Jesus. Why? Because we are serving an eternal God. It happened long ago, before you were born. Don't you know that God counted you as being there? The eternal God didn't have to wait until you were born, until you believed and repented before he could give you to Jesus. He could do it from eternity. All his works were finished from before the foundation of the earth, it says in Hebrews 4. He is working out in time what he purposed and decreed before he made the world. So you were given to the Lord Jesus and he died for you. And to use this biblical analogy, you were sprinkled with his blood centuries before you were even born. It was done by the command of God, the decree of the Almighty. We have been sealed into the new covenant by the blood of Jesus Messiah through the eternal plan of God sprinkled the book and the people. Who are the people? We are. We have been sprinkled to obedience of Christ by his blood. That's the foundation of our new covenant. To jump back to Hebrews 9 again, we read earlier 13 and 14. If the blood of bulls and goats and so on sanctified them, cleansed them from sin temporarily for a time being, How much more will the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanse your consciences from works that lead to death to serve the living God? It's a how much more argument. That you'll be cleansed and made clean and be able to live in a new way. Now, remember, the main point that the writer is saying is that both the book of the law and the people and the old covenant, the law of Moses, were sprinkled and they were joined together by that sprinkling. They were sealed to one another by this sprinkling of blood. The people in the new covenant are us. Everyone who believes in Jesus, yes? We're sealed to him by his blood. But what about the book? What's the book? Is it, is it this? Is it the back end of this, the New Testament? You know, is, is, it, is it the Bible? Well, no, it isn't the Bible. It's Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself. All scripture points and leads to him. You know I love the scriptures, but the Bible is not an end in itself. The written word of God leads us to and feeds us on the living word of God. The old covenant was written literally in a book, but the new covenant does not depend upon parchment and pen and ink or a printing press. It depends entirely on the person of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In fact, twice in Isaiah, the new covenant is described as being embodied in a person. I will make him a covenant to the people. Twice in Isaiah. I will make him the covenant to the people. Who fulfilled that? Jesus. Jesus is the new covenant in his person, in his body. And eternal life, salvation, is knowing him. Let me read you some scriptures from John and 1 John. Jesus said, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. In his great prayer in John 17, Jesus prays this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Messiah, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. This is salvation. Salvation is not a something, it's a someone. It is Jesus. And really the new covenant is all about Jesus. He embodies it. John 
1 John 5, rather, he says, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. There's a lot of wasted time on wasted religion in this world because the only way to have eternal life is to know God the Father through God the Son. Through Jesus. It was by spilling his own blood that the new covenant was made. Now think about this for a moment. The book was sprinkled with the blood of the animals. I don't know how many of you have seen a movie like like the, uh, the the Passion of the Christ. That's one of the most realistic crucifixion scenes I've ever seen. That one. Uh, Jesus was yeah he was thoroughly sprinkled with his own blood. The spear emptied his body of the blood. His side. The book and the people were sprinkled. Jesus himself and his people are sealed together in covenant relationship through his blood. Freedom. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest entered the holy place year by year with blood that was not his own. We talked about that last time. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation, this shorter word end would have done there, of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, I want you to notice something here. The Bible here, the writer here, does not say that Jesus entered heaven and sprinkled his blood there. It doesn't say that. To say that is to go beyond Scripture. I know preachers talk about that. It goes beyond Scripture. In fact, the writer is careful not to say that. Jesus entered in having shed his blood. The first covenant had priests and a high priest and holy places. It was only a copy or a shadow. And the shedding of blood happened daily and significantly for the forgiveness of sins once a year. And it happened again and again and again. But under the new covenant, Jesus himself is our high priest. He's entered into a greater, more perfect sanctuary, heaven itself. It's the heavenly reality of which the Old Testament was only a shadow. And Jesus has shed his blood once for all. He bled and died once for all. Once in time. In a sense, in the middle of time. For all eternity, for all the redeemed, for all their sin. This blood sacrifice for this new covenant, this atonement, this this joining together of warring parties, God angry with our sin, we rebelling in hardness of heart against him, we are reconciled through Jesus. Making peace by the blood of the cross. This is the complete testimony of the New Testament, that it was completed at the cross. In fact, Jesus said it himself with a loud voice, Crucified people don't shout when they die, but Jesus did. It is finished. I'd say the Greek word, but I can never remember it right. (laughs) It's quite long. Therefore, 
I firmly reject the teaching of both the Roman Catholic Church and of high church people who say that at Mass, when the priest offers the wafer and the blood, they become literally the body and blood of Jesus. And the sacrifice of Jesus is not only remembered in that Mass, but repeated. That is not true. We do not repeat the sacrifice of Jesus. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Because he suffered once for all. It is finished. We also need to think carefully about how we speak or sing about his blood. You know? Uh, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, you know. And, uh, still it flows as fresh as ever from my Savior's wounded side. I used to sing those songs when I was a kid. And something troubled me when I started to read the Bible. I thought, oh, no, 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 no. At best, that's poetry. But the danger is we stop believing our poetry and we lose truth, hand, uh, uh, hand on the truth, which is he suffered and died once for all. There is not a supply of Jesus' blood for us to do stuff with today, folks. Let me be very clear with you. All right? and, and God bless you if you pray for me to be under the blood, but if, I tell you the truth, if I am not under the blood of Jesus, I'm a lost sinner. Right? It's, you know, I'm, in that Bible picture, if I'm under his blood, then I'm saved. You know? Nor do we need to plead the blood. And some early Pentecostals, you know, so they used to have whole meetings when they just they just they just clapped and sang the blood, the blood, the blood, the blood. I mean, God bless them. A bit of ignorance there. You do not need to plead the blood. When we get to Hebrews twelve, you'll find Hebrews ten and eleven and twelve, you find this. Jesus' blood speaks for us. It speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood called out from the ground for vengeance. My brother's killed me. Look, don't you see? My brother's killed me. Jesus' blood pleads this, forgive them for they know not what they do. It pleads better things than the blood of Abel. His blood was shed once for all. He does not now suffer and bleed. He reigns and mediates and intercedes for us in the presence of the Father. Please don't mix and confuse the finished work of the cross with his Continuing heavenly ministry. There's no more suffering, there's no more bleeding to be done. What he does now is he reigns and he represents us. And he directs the Holy Spirit to be a helper. And he supplies us from heaven with every good thing we need for life and godliness through his precious promises. He's the executor of the covenant. The suffering and dying is done. Praise his name. But he's now the one who actively is applying the benefits of all that he's done for us to you and I. And how do we receive them? By faith. By trusting him. Asking and believing him. Jesus died once for all. I'm behind you. Once for all. Once for all time. Once for all sin. Once for all his people. Scripture says he bled and died at the end of the ages. My version says the consummation of the age or the ages. I'll put a diagram on the back sheet of the notes and uh, I'll put it up there in a minute. But Just explain to you. What does this end of the ages mean? Did Jesus die at the end of time? No, not in terms of being the last day. But he died at the end of a time. He died at the end of the law. He died to closed the law and he died to inaugurate the new age the age of the gospel the age of grace 
The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's a changeover. There's a changeover. It's the end of the ages. The age of Moses is closing. The age of Messiah has started. The age of grace rather than law has come. And Jesus died at the crossover of the ages. His cross is where they meet. Law ended. Law fulfilled. Law fully paid for. He took away the the, the commandments that were against us and nailed them to his cross, it says in Colossians. So guess what? From there, from now on, what do we have available to us? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit. Why? Because they are made ours through the cross of Jesus. He died at the end of the ages. This is said in other places as well. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. God has in these last days... That doesn't mean just recently. It means, no, we are now in the last days. When did they start? When Jesus rose from the dead. They don't start because somebody gets elected in America we get worried about. Do you understand that? All the last days are coming. God has spoken to us in these last days by his Son, whom he spoke, pointed out of all things, by whom also he made the world. The expression last days doesn't mean just recently. Since Jesus came, lived and died, we've been living in the last age. This is his age, the final age of mankind. It's not the age of Noah and the flood. It's not the age of the Israelites in the desert. It's not the, late, the, the age of the, of the Roman Empire or the, or, or, or the British Empire or, 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 or whatever. It's the age of Jesus. That's what defines it. From God's point of view, we're kind of seeing all these historical things happening and whatever. But from God's point of view, we are in the age of Jesus the Messiah, which will be completed on his last day. These things happen to them as an example who were written for instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That's the same expression in 1 Corinthians 10 as here in Hebrews. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son. Fullness of time. When the time came, when the old time was finished with, when it was time to close down the old covenant, Jesus came. With a view to the administration but the fullness of the times. That is now full. That is now completed. The new age is beginning in Jesus. I've given you a diagram which looks like that. It basically says that from when Jesus came, the age of Moses on the law was ending. Jesus died on the cross and fulfilled it all, rose again. They kept the, the, the temple going for another 40 years, but it really didn't matter because the age of Moses was ended. We've been living since the resurrection of Jesus in the age of Messiah, which is called biblically or rabbinically, the, that's the way the Jewish people speak of it. The age of Messiah is the last days. And when Jesus comes, he'll introduce the eternal ages. You can look at that another time and ask me about it any time. You see, let's go back. All my life, some preachers and teachers have been trying to get me concerned about the fact that we're living in the last days. Until I understood, well, I've always, we've always been living in the last days. Every Christian's lived in the last days. They started when Jesus rose from the dead. The first sign of the last days... The first sign of the reign of Jesus was what? The Holy Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up and says, these are the last days, because it says in Joel, in the last days I'll pour my spirit on all flesh. In other words, the last days are here, and the Jewish people who heard him said, what do we need to do then? If, if, if the Jesus we crucified is the risen Messiah and he sent the Holy Spirit, we're living, what, what do we do? You know, you, preachers like that kind of reaction to preaching. You know, it's like, 
Don't often get it. So when you hear some preacher teacher trying to make you worried and get you concerned and point to this in the news and point to that in the news, you know, cults and sects about the last week, treat it with some skepticism because actually there's an awful lot of history that just keeps repeating. There's quite a few patterns that keep going. We're, we're coming into the age of dictators again, 100 years on. We're back where we were this time last century, it seems to me. As for those who predict the Lord's return is coming, and some famous names have predicted 2000, wrong, 2008, wrong. <laughs> and they do it despite the Lord Jesus deliberately warning us not to do it. Of that day and of that hour, no man knows. Only my Father in heaven. But they think they'll have a go. And they're always proved wrong. Which is why I'm not joining that queue of fools. Why do you listen to them? If someone this week showed you a YouTube thing or whatever, they said, Jesus is going to come in 2018. I do hope you're not going to get excited about it and think it's true. Everybody who sticks their name onto something like that gets proved now the lucky ones, if I put it that way, will be proved wrong by Jesus coming sooner than they said. <laughs> but for most of them, it's embarrassing really, isn't it? He bled and died to seal the new covenant and us to the new covenant. I know, I've already said that. Moses sprinkled the book and the people. Jesus on the cross made the new covenant in his blood. And we are sealed to him through his blood. In other words, put it another way. Paul puts it this way, right in the Corinthians. He bought us. We're paid for. We don't belong to ourselves. We are his. We are sealed to him. Be careful too if you look up blood and covenant, because some people talk about blood covenant, and what they're doing is they're adding things into scripture from history and traditions and so on about what a blood covenant is. And the Bible doesn't say blood covenant, it says the blood of the covenant. It's quite specific. It's, it's not going. It's not drawing on every kind of background tradition. It's drawing on the Old Testament, which God set up to be the foreshadow of the New. So it's fulfilling the Old Testament, not things that happened in other societies. So be careful about that one. And by the way, a lot of preachers, when they can't prove it from Scripture, claim special revelation. I know because the Lord told me. Well, I've read the Bible and He didn't. So Jesus' blood, which means his suffering and death, and blood always means his death. Yes, it's a shorthand way of saying all his suffering and all his death. The blood of Jesus has inaugurated the new covenant, redeemed us from our guilt and condemnation. So we come to the last verse of Hebrews 9, or last verses. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Jesus also, Christ Jesus also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. There are two unbreakable statements here. Right? Universal statements. Number one, because of sin we all die and face the judgment of God. That's true for every human being. It doesn't matter whether people believe that, they'll find out in the long run. They'll find out it's true. And by the way, that statement also, and lots of other scriptures too, 
defeats the argument for reincarnation. I hope when I come back, I come back as a butterfly. Or the transference of souls that, you know, this person used to be that person, used to be that person. And also the, then, the I can't even say, annihilation of the human soul. They are denied by the scripture, which says it's appointed by God, it's appointed for everyone to die once and face judgment. You don't die and live again. You die and you face judgment. But there's another unbreakable statement in the scripture. Jesus will appear a second time. On the last day, according to his promise, to save his people, not by redeeming us from our sin. He's done that by the cross. But to bring us into all our eternal inheritance, to put away all sin and all evil from all creation. And we will enter into what is ours as heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah, as promised in his new covenant. Therefore, that that scripture says, we should be eagerly waiting for him. Eagerly waiting. That's not worried waiting. Oh, it might be, days are getting terrible. Oh, I I hope he comes soon. We're eagerly awaiting. He's coming to come and we're going to inherit and we're going to see him. The second coming should provoke in us hope, not fear. Right? When people preach the second coming to make you scared, they've missed the point. The second coming of Jesus is his glorious, joyful appearing for us. And we will be transformed. And we will be with him. And we will see him. So let me ask you something. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Son of God? I didn't say about him. I didn't say, what do you know about him? I say, do you know him? You know. Now, generally speaking, we understand that idea. You either know someone or you don't. You know, you might have spent last night watching one of the programs on TV, X Factor or, uh, or Come Dancing, and I could say, do you know so-and-so? And you say, oh, I saw them on TV last night. No, you don't know them. You know something about them. To know them means you've met them. To know them means you speak with them. To know them means you understand something about them. You have a connection, a relationship. They are a person to you. They are a real person to you. Not an image, not in a book, not on a screen. A real person to you. So let me ask you again. Do you know the Lord Jesus? You see, he is the living mediator of this new covenant. All that he did for us at the cross is now actively brought to us through from Jesus himself, simply through knowing him, asking him, receiving from him. I feel like putting up the, the Lockridge one. Do you know him? You know? I wish I could tell you about him. He's doing a jolly good job on that video. We know him as our person, as our saviour, as our king, as our master. You know him and you feel you don't know him, so you keep pressing in to know him more. Because in the end, this is not about getting this fixed or that sorted or dealing with that sin. Those are issues that need to happen, but you guess what? It's really bigger than that. This is all about Jesus. And you belonging to him and you being part of his reward for his suffering on the cross. And your life honoring him. about him. 
In a minute, we're going to celebrate communion together. We've heard the phrase, the blood of the covenant today. Paul quoting Moses, reapplying what was said when they sprinkled the book on the people. This is the blood of the covenant. And he says, Jesus has done that. Now here's some astounding thing. Jesus said it the night before he went to the cross. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing, he broke it and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he'd taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. See, if anybody knew the Old Testament and knew how Israel had been sanctified to God by the book and the people being sprinkled with the blood. And Jesus is holding up a cup. I'm going to borrow one a minute. Jesus didn't grab some hyssop and sprinkle them. He did this. He said, take and drink, all of you. He's looking at them, offering them the cup, getting them to pass it to one another. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Every time we take one of our cups of grape juice representing wine, representing the blood of Jesus, we say again, He's made us His. He has sealed us to Himself by His blood. We are bought and redeemed by the blood of God. And I'm quoting Acts 20, 28 there. I didn't make it up. The blood of God. The new covenant was made for us in the blooded person of Jesus on the cross. And our coming together to the Lord's table brings us back every time to his cross. We stand together just the same with one mediator, with one high priest, with one who's given his life for us and now gives his life to us. He's at work in us and for us. Mediating all that he's won. So we live in the benefit of it now, albeit we live with mixture, we're still fallen beings. But one day we will inherit fully as the sons of God the inheritance that Jesus has for us. It's his testament. It's his covenant. It's his will. And really, it's all about him. Therefore, to know him is to have eternal life. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you and worship you. Think again of John's gospel. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that being a Christian, being one of your people, you define in very, very simple terms to see you and believe in you. To know you. Lord, we are so easily dragged away from the simplicity of the gospel by all of the mess that we feel we need to deal with and sort but you tell us to come to you to come to you as we are to come to you 
with all of our mess and then allow you to help us and show us, to redefine us, to reshape us, to cleanse us, to renew us. Well, we don't particularly like to think of ourselves as those who have been sprinkled with blood, but that is the image you give to us today in the Scriptures. That by the sacrifice of Jesus, it's as if we stood at the foot of the cross that day, we have been joined to him in this covenant. He has bought us for himself. We are yours, Lord Jesus. We are yours. Holy Spirit, burn these truths deeper into our hearts as we act them out again now with bread and wine representing your body and your blood. We thank you that we're not under the law, we're under grace. We thank you that there, we don't have to learn thousands and thousands of do's and don'ts. We simply have to follow our Master, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father.